I think the harder part is actually after that. So a lot of companies get to the growth stage. So a lot of companies will get to, let's say, $20, $30 million of revenue. I think in any given market, you can get to that size. I always kind of view it as almost like there's an invisible barrier at, at that level where you can get to that level with good execution. But beyond that, you need a really good execution and probably a very good product market fit. And the product market fit is the hardest part for us to figure out. This is the Digital Irish Podcast a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, with a mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's episode, I sit down with Kean Cotter, the Managing Director of Insight Partners. Insight Partners are a private equity firm that invests in growth stage technology and software businesses. As a managing director of Insight Partners, Kean spends most of his time traveling around the world to speak with investors. He will speak with sovereign funds, pension funds, and endowments who might be interested in investing in Insight's upcoming fund. Insight Partners are one of the leading growth stage private equity firms in the world. As a growth stage investor, Insight Partners come in when a company has significant revenues, which could be as small as five to $10 million, but the average company has revenues of $30 million at the point that Insight invests. Over his time at Insight Partners, Kean has developed an expertise for helping companies go public. And as we get into today's interview, we'll talk about the process of taking a company public. But before we get into Kean's career, let's go back to the early beginnings. Kean grew up in the small town of Cove, just outside of Cork City, where his grandfather had a clothing store, which was eventually passed down to his parents. And Kean didn't grow up in an environment where he was immersed in technology, but he definitely caught the bug for it when he got the opportunity to work at Apple while he was at the University of Limerick. I went there and the first year I went there, you had to start planning for your co-op at the end of the, at the, end of the semester and, and um, I had the opportunity to go to Apple. Um, so Apple would hire two people from the class a year, I think, um, to work at the factory in Hollyhill in Cork. And I got to work in the purchasing department at Apple. Um, it was really my first paid job. And uh, it was just a fantastic place to work. Great learning, um, great culture. Um, learned all about supply chain management and all the, all the, all the different parts about how to, at the time, the, the, those, if you remember, the, um, the power books were just coming out, those gray at the time. They looked like space age laptops. They were just coming out. And so Cork was, was sort of at the forefront of assembling those um, and, and uh, I was involved in purchasing all the, in, in a team that was involved in purchasing all the components. It was fantastic. And um, I did six months there and actually very fortunately met um, the head of our group uh, who was visiting from Cupertino at the end of my time and invited me to go out and spend a couple of months in Cupertino, um, which I did. So actually six months turned into eight or nine months. Um, and so was, was it that summer that you went out to Cupertino? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so right, yeah, yeah. So I, had, I, had, I think I started at Apple in January, um, and then in June I moved out to Cupertino and did did July August. Wow. There working. How at old Apple. were you at that stage? Uh, I would have been in. I was. I was just finishing second year at UL, so I guess you know, twenty. That must have been 30, some 20s. journey to go out to Cupertino. Crazy, and, crazy. Know. I had to get it. I got a J one visa like everybody, um, but I had a MacBook, a PowerBook in my bag which was kind of crazy. Um, and I remember arriving at JFK. Um, this would have been 1992. I remember arriving at JFK, and um, I think the use it people that you got the J1 
visa from, arranged to pick you up at JFK and put you up at Columbia University here to give you an orientation for living in the US. I don't know if they still do that today, no. but that's what they did. And so what not to do and how not to get yourself in trouble. And you know, the drinking age is 21, so don't be running into bars and things like that. And um, yeah, and I remember everyone sitting around talking about what, you know, what they were going to do, you know, they're going to Cape Cod to try and find a job in a bar or whatever. And I was, I'm going to Cupertino to work for Apple. It was, it was, it was a bit surreal. Um, so I ended up, yeah, the following day flying out to San Francisco and, and spent two months there. And, um, yeah, that was my first exposure to the technology industry. And I absolutely had the bug from there. It was fantastic. What did they yeah. have you doing when you were in Cupertino? So I was in the supply chain management group and, um, they were just starting to implement a supplier certification program where, um, their vendors could get, um, qualifications, uh, as preferred vendor status and give them rankings. Just yeah. actually out of curiosity, so yeah. where was Apple at that time? So we're talking about 1992. Was yeah. that kind of Steve Jobs' first stint at Apple, was it? He, he had already, I think, left at that point and was okay. doing Next. Oh, so um, Next and was Or if he hadn't, he was about to. Okay. Um, and I went back to college. I went back to UL. And I did a second stint at Apple. Um, so you do two co-ops and my second one was also at Apple. So I went back to in Cork, in Cork. Yeah. yeah, I did the same thing. And at that point it was, you know, Microsoft was absolutely, you know, taking market share, totally different model. Um, everybody thought Apple had screwed up with, you know, by not, you know, letting their operating system be licensed onto other hardware instead of keeping it proprietary and share price was really down. Um, and, and, and Steve Jobs in order to be seen, he was off doing his, his next thing. Um, so, you know, amazing to, uh, to look back now and, um, and, and see where they, you know, see where they've got. But my, my, when I went back the second time, I actually had to do a thesis for my last year at UL and I, they were just starting to, um, uh, Apple was just trying to experiment, starting to experiment with, um, PDAs. So it was the Newton message pad. If you ever remember it, you okay. probably don't remember no. it if you're too young. It's about 10 times bigger than this. But I do remember the PDAs. Um, I'm holding my iPhone, um, and it could do nothing. Um, <laughs> but you could take a pen and write on it. And if you, if I hooked it up, I think I could, through infrared, send you a business card, maybe. Um, you could hook it up to your hotel room and send a fax and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, my, my final year thesis at UL was, you know, would that become a mass market product? Um, and I started that in that year. Um, and that, that didn't product didn't take off, but it's really interesting to see how the company's fortunes have changed basically by starting with that. Um, And, uh, you know, you know, eventually they got more towards the phone was the, Oh, so you're saying because that that was kind of the inception for a deviation on their innovation. Like, I I don't know if there's a straight line from that news message pad to the iPhone, but certainly if you think about what they were thinking of, um, if you look at what they were thinking of, um, and certainly I I remember from my thesis thinking that, um, uh, you know, that the applications on, on, on the message pad would be the thing. So there'd be an application for the, for the FedEx delivery driver or for the doctor or, and that, that would, those applications would end up being the drive the adoption. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of that is kind of, we've all got apps yeah, on our phones yeah, yeah, today. For sure. Um, but you know, that was, that was 1994. So very yeah, interesting. Yeah. You see, you did your stint, you did your time in college, you studied marketing at, uh, when you were there, right? I did uh, marketing and finance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But your, but your interest then during the co-ops was in supply chain management. Yeah, that was, that was just what was available. At, at okay. Apple. That was, the, 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 I think they had one, might've had one gig in finance and they're like, 
finance accounting department and one gig available in purchasing. And that was just what they had. And it was just, it didn't matter. You, just, you were just working at Apple and you were working in business. You were in a team. You were... It was the exposure yeah. to it all. It's the exposure to it all. You were working with a computer in, a, in an office for the first time. Um, you, were, you were sending emails, which in 1994, weren't, like not a lot of emails around you. To, they had their own proprietary email system called Apple Link. You would literally log in like you, if you remember, logging into AOL. Apple Link was like logging into their system. And it was sort of you were connected to the internet for some period of time. You'd, you'd send emails and then you'd log out to save money. Um, apparently, like if the, if you if you left your Apple Link connected up, or you've been charged for the airtime, um, so yeah, totally totally different times. But it was yeah, it didn't matter that it wasn't marketing or finance. It didn't matter. It was just it was you were working in a company, right? And you were seeing how a company operates. And yeah. where where did you go after that then? So you, you you left Limerick. So so yeah, so I graduated from Limerick. Spent a few months. Spent the summer after I graduated Limerick trying to find a job in Ireland in marketing. Marketing was really my chosen specialization. Um, like every graduate in 1994, figured out that there was not much going on in Ireland. Spent a lot of times, time traveling around, uh, you know, interviewing with advertising agencies and, you know, marketing departments and in, in companies. Um, and eventually, by the end of the summer, I just decided this isn't going to work, and I went to move to London. And was that just yeah. because there was there was a shortage of jobs in yeah. those types of fields? Yeah, there was yeah. nothing. There was nothing. I mean, unless, yeah, there was nothing. I, I think maybe engineers had good opportunities, but I think in terms of just just regular sort of business management, very little. Okay, so, yeah, it, was, so, I, so it was over I to London. got on the plane and moved to London in, in late 94. And where did and you I, get started with there? Yeah, so I did a lot of temporary jobs and then stumbled across a startup, um, uh, which was called Howard Multimedia, which was, um, and I, all the time while I was there, I was, I was applying for, 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 for what I'd call proper jobs instead of doing the temping that I was doing. Um, but uh, this company, Howard Multimedia, was a startup founded by an Australian entrepreneur who was taking all the university um, curriculum um, and putting them onto a CD-ROM. Uh, so he's digitizing all of the curriculum and creating videos around universities so students who were deciding which university to apply for could use that CD-ROM to decide which university and they could search the courses all the course content was in there each university made a video um, of around their um, university and so I was I was at I was basically a sales rep for that company I was I, it was a great job I got to see the whole of the UK I went to virtually every town in the UK any any city that had a university I was going there meeting the the department the marketing departments and kind of getting them onto this onto that platform. So I spent I spent I think it was about a year doing that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, amazing yeah. to think about that that yeah, is a business the, model back then, isn't it? Just to yeah, see how then it was CD ROM. It changed. was not online. It was yeah. a CD ROM. Yeah, yeah. That business still exists today actually. Really? Yeah, yeah, what are they doing yeah. today? Uh you know, I think they take they put it all online. Yeah. yeah it's a small business, but yeah, it's uh, I think uh, I think they're still in Australia. So yeah, it was founded by an Australian founder and it's more of a global business, but he's in Australia. But it was a classic startup. It was, I was employee number two, I think, or something. We were literally working out of an apart, out of the founder's apartment. It was a great experience, but um, I felt like I needed to get into somewhere with a bit more structure where I'd actually really learn the ropes, particularly in marketing. Um, so I ended up applying for the for a, a job at, at Canon. So uh, the, the camera Japanese, company. The camera company and the photocopier company. And so their, sub, their UK subsidiary had a very large marketing department. Um, and I ended up joining them as a as an asso- a marketing associate and sort of really went into sort of their management training program. Um, and I worked there for seven years. And that was, that was a great, that was where I really learned, learned a lot. It was sort of similar to Apple in terms of a, a grounding. 
it was a fantastic place to work, you know, as a, as a person who was, you know, probably just one year out of college to go into a structured environment, into a team, um, eventually became sort of a, you know, a, a product marketing manager and sort of a leader of a group of, of about, I think it's five or six people um, launching new products into the market, um, doing a lot of marketing events, doing, uh, sale, you know, working with salespeople, helping them to, to sell what a fundamental, it was photocopiers. So it was tech, but not the, not the, not the leading edge of tech, but also highly commoditized market. Um, photocopiers are not that different from each other, yeah. but you spent all your time trying to make them feel different from each other for your customers. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a good marketing challenge. Uh, and it was, what were the, some of the things that you would do to separate it? Cause I can imagine that's a, cause how can you create some sort of an emotional sentiment around a photocopier? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a great question. A lot of it is around brand. So, so I would say one of the benefits that Canon had, it had a, the brand is very well thought of and like at a corporate level, they would always have it at sporting events. If you ever saw any of the, I don't know, the European Champions League games or Olympics, you'd see the Canon brand. It was just the word Canon. Yeah. And, and there was a very positive, I was, it was a very positively associated brand. And I think it being Japanese was seen of sort of, uh, I remember when I joined, I think they had a, their, their, their catchphrase was, if anyone can, Canon can. Um, that evolved over time and it was seen as too arrogant. And I was like, we need to be empowering our customers. So then it changed it, you and Canon can. But it was always the sort of the can-do Right element of it, um, but you know we worked with ad agencies who would put a photocopier in the middle of a photo studio and make it look amazing. You know, put color around it, and and we did TV ads, um, and so yeah, a lot of it was around just drawing on the strength of the brand. Um, but then it was, you know, I think our job was, you know, I always viewed our job as for our, for the salespeople in the company. Once they got got in the door to a customer, that they had a fair shot of winning the deal, um, and it was down to their selling skills to win the deal. And they would, you know, I think I would say. In that industry, um, because you don't have a very differentiated product, you have great salespeople. Like that's a really test of your sales skills. You've got a product that is not that different from from the others, and you've got to use your you know your selling skills and your techniques. Um, so yeah, I got to, I got to spend a lot of time with some amazing salespeople, and it was it was a really good eye opener for me. I think we're all we're all fundamentally salespeople in our lives, and it's a great skill to learn. and And that was a, certainly a great place to meet a lot of really talented salespeople. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious just on that. Like, what what, what are the elements? Because for selling a, a photocopying machine, mm-hmm. what are you doing to sell there? I'm just thinking, I'm just trying to think about it in my own head where, you know, how are you, how are you positioning that? Because that is a tough sell. Well, so look, look I mean, I'm, I, I view myself very much as a salesperson myself today. I'm, I'm the person in front of our clients. And, and I would say, um, no different from what I do today. I think what I used to see those salespeople do then is you, you don't say anything, you ask questions and, and, you, and you understand and you, uh, you know, what, what does the customer really care about? And I used to see these salespeople go into a, an office in the city of London where you're in the bowels of the, of the building where the people who are doing copying all these books or materials for the bank and he'd go in and ask them and what are their problems? What are they really focused on? And that it could be something really small. It could be like, oh, well, this... You know, my documents are 50 pages thick, but this this photocopier only staples to 40. So therefore, I have to manually staple or just just things that 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 they would watch out for. Um, but they wouldn't go in all guns blazing. This is the best, you know, things since sliced bread, and you have to have it. It wasn't that. It was much more, you know, building a relationship, and and it was focusing on, you know, it wasn't always the person who was at the, as you can imagine, it wasn't the person at the top of the totem pole in an organization that was using the photocopier, but that's who you had to pay attention to. 
because their feedback ended up influencing what product got chosen. Yeah. And after mm-hmm. seven years, how did, how did you feel after, after your time there? Did you feel like you had reached as much as you could get out yeah, of it? Yeah, I had. So it, it, it was effectively a sales subsidiary. So I was doing marketing, but it was really the marketing communications side of marketing as opposed to, um, let's say, more the data-orientated parts of marketing. So I started to get frustrated, and I think there's a general trend with marketing at the time, which I think is quite different today. But, 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 but you know, it was very much branding and the software side of marketing, which I appreciated, but I, I, I sort of had a skepticism around. Uh, whereas if you know, uh, if you look at sort of more using data to make decisions in marketing, I think people do that a lot today because your customers find you on the internet and everything has data around it. Um, and and I had sort of gotten, I felt I had gotten to the point where I need to do something different. Um, and um, you know, at that point, I actually left to join Cable and Wireless, um, and I wanted to go a bit heavier on tech and a bit more towards strategy as opposed to marketing. So I, I went in there as a, as a product strategy manager. But that was a, I, I joined there a year before the technology bubble burst in the, in, the, in the early 2000s. And I could see the writing on the wall pretty, you know, not long after I joined there. And, and then we had the burst. The market cap of Cable & Wireless shrank. Um, they were doing redundancy programs. Um, I was not chosen for one. But I begged for one, and I missed a couple of rounds. But I begged for one. I had already decided I would leave and go to business school, and I went to business school primarily because I didn't have a better idea of what to do. Um, I thought, okay, I need to. Yeah, I think marketing is a bit limiting. I want to do something broader. Um, I had already minored in finance at uh, UL, and I thought man, I'd like to do more around finance. Um, was still interested in technology, but very interested in where technology meets private markets, so private equity and venture capital. And so I thought if I went to back to business school, took a year to two years at school, kind of re-energize my CV, for want of a better word, and just give myself an, uh, an opportunity to, to build a network uh, and kind of take my career in a different trajectory. Uh, tra- trajectory. That's what I did. So I, I left Cable and Wireless in, um, in uh, 01, okay. middle of 01, and uh, uh, turned up at, at HEC in Paris. Um, in September of 01. And what led you to go to HEC as a, as a business school? You know, I had a great friend who had been there as an undergrad, an undergraduate. Um, um, I was very interested in the French experience. Um, so I had already... Had you spent much time in France? Uh, just a, as a kid on holidays. Yeah. Uh, and I was interested in, in the culture and the language. Um, and so um, uh, he had recommended it to me as, one number one, it's a very, very highly regarded school within the French system. So the undergrads that go to HEC, or HSA as they call it, is like the Harvard of the US. Um, no one outside of France really knows about it, but that's what it is. Um, the MBA school is not nearly as highly regarded, although it is today, it wasn't at the time, it's done much better in the last 10 years or so. But um, but yeah, so a friend of mine recommended it to me as a great school. Um, half the education would be in French. I was interested in that. Um, um, did you and have a good level of French at that stage? No, no, I didn't. But I, so I, when, when I when I when I left Cable Wireless, I spent, I spent the summer studying it in London. So I went to the the, the French school in in London and studied it. And I was by no means fluent when I turned up, and 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 I really struggled in the classes that were in French. Uh, but you know, got better. I certainly co- had good conversational fluency by the time I left. Uh, I spent a whole summer in Montpellier. So instead of doing a, so I didn't do a UL. I didn't do my um, I didn't do my co-op. I actually decided I'd take the summer on the beach in Montpellier, which was fantastic. 
that was um, that was in 2002, uh, and I just did French classes every day. Wow! Uh, and that was that really improved. I was by myself. Yeah. Um, so that was that was a really good way of just immersing myself. And um, left. Yeah, I ended up leaving there. Um, can't speak a word of French today, of course. But I had while I was at cable and wireless, I had all, I'd been to New York on business a few times. Also, when I was with Canon, I had been to New York on business a few times, and I I was dead set on ending up here. And HEC had a exchange program with NYU, so I did I did uh, a year at HEC, and I did six months at NYU here to finish off my MBA program. So, so was it, it was, was it that different. exposure when you came to NYU? Then did it give you that vision where you that you would be uh, looking for? You know, there was um, there, there was definitely there was a moment where someone at, at NYU did me a huge favor, probably one of the biggest favors anyone ever did me, without knowing that they were doing me a favor at the time, but. But because we were um, an exchange, I was on an exchange program, was technically not a fee-paying student at NYU. And therefore, you weren't able to avail of all the services, for example, career services there, which are very, very extensive at the US schools. The career services are really, really good. Um, but I wasn't really able to avail of that. But the careers person did come in and make a presentation. Um, and, and she said that if you want to stay in the United States, um, you'd better have someone who is ready to sponsor you or you already have citizenship or, or you've got a green card because it was right after 9-11 and it was really hard to get a, a working visa at the time. I was actually on a student visa. It was really hard to get a working visa. Um, so that was one. And I was like, okay, that's, I didn't appreciate that. That makes it really hard. And then secondly, that um, said, if, if you want to work in private equity or venture capital, that's really tough because all the fund sizes are shrinking because the technology bubble had just burst. And in fact, a lot of funds have gone out of business. And, and you know, in my, my, naive, my naivety, I turned up in New York wanting to work in technology, private equity, venture capital um, in New York. And those are all the things that she, tell, she was telling me was really, really hard. And it was great. It was, it was sort of the kick up the ass I needed to kind of go, okay, I, I better get creative here. Um, and so actually, that's how I ended up reaching out to all of the firms in New York, uh, VC and tech private equity firms for internships. And so, yeah, within a month of, Arriving at NYU, I actually started an internship where I work today. Um, partners. Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I got to the the, the, the the National Venture Capital Association has a website, and you can click on the New York branch. You can see every single firm that's a member of it, and uh, VC firms and PE firms are we're so vain. We have all our partners up on the as the team page, so you can email everybody <laughs> and cold call them. So I did that. I cold called everybody. Um, I and I I. Offered to work for free, I was and I, I reworked my my timetable where I would I think I had I was doing two or three days a week at NYU. My my criteria for selecting a subject at NYU was is it Monday Tuesday um, because that's when I'm going to be at NYU. Wednesday Thursday Friday I'm going to be working somewhere um, in an office even if I'm not being paid, and that would that would be the best path to getting having this work out because I was on a I had a ticking time bomb and that my study visa was going to expire and I had to make this this work by probably September and this was January how, how long has the Thai partners been around for um 25 years so it started in 1995 and it, with the mm -hmm. same structure of the type of business that it is yep. today yeah, yeah. always a, a growth equity firm focused on the software industry with a flexibility to do both minority transactions and bio transactions so fundamentally investing in high growth software companies private high growth software companies and so, just to flesh that out a bit more, yeah. so that that's where they've raised their they've raised their VC fund. They already have some capital. They've had capital to start the business. Mm -hmm. 
now they're at the stage of growth and they need uh, large sums of investment to probably, you know, double down and meet the growth that's being demanded of them. Yeah, some of them have not raised capital and some of them have. Okay. Um, so some of them might have gotten to the growth stage very, very efficiently by not raising any outside capital. Okay. And a lot of entrepreneurs have a healthy skepticism for outside investors like us and they decide not to bother with it for a while. Um, and and so um, today it's harder to find those companies that have not raised a seed stage round or a Series A from somebody. Um, but we don't define the stage at which we invest by the traditional A, B, C, or seed. Um, we define it by the size of the company. Um, our, our average company at the point we're investing has somewhere between 30 and $50 million of revenue already. So the key, and, and, and we do that because we don't want to take too much risk. We want to get in very high growth businesses and we're very happy to pay off for them, but we don't want to take startup risk. And so we're coming into these businesses where we think they're significantly de-risked. Um, they've got a product, it's working. They've got customers who are voting with their IT budget meaning they're buying it and they like it. And in our due diligence, we can ask them if they like it and understand the return on investment that, are getting, that they're getting from those products. Um, and I call it evidence-based investing. The evidence of the momentum of the company is already on the income statement of the business. You're not using a crystal ball to say, okay, let's you know, try and guess if this product's going to be popular or if this company's product is going to be the winner in the market. You're already seeing evidence of that on the income statements of the business. Um, and that's fundamentally in terms of the stage at which we want to come in to these businesses. And what did you, so you, you went in and you got a, a job that you, you were just taking as an internship to begin with. Yeah. Where did you begin then when you got your first kind of permanent position within Insight Partners? Yeah, so I, I came in, I was an unusual hire. They didn't then and they really don't today hire uh, people with MBAs or people who are at that stage in their career. 90% of the people that join the firm are, are joining at the entry level as an analyst straight out of university. Um, and so right from the start, I was sort of, given a, you know, an indication that, look, you can do your internship, but you're not really, you don't fit the normal mold of who we hire here because we, we actually, we cold call for deals. So we're picking up the phone calling every single private software company in the world. And they had learned from experience that MBAs don't want to do that. <laughs> um, but people who are straight out of university do. So that's, that's, you know, that was the hiring model. Uh, but they said, look, maybe, maybe this was after the technology bubble had burst and, and they sort of felt that, they had a, a significant portfolio, but they had lost contacts with the bankers in the, in the software industry. So a lot of the bankers that were, had been around were no longer in jobs. The banks had fired the software bankers because there was no software deals happening. And they thought, well, maybe we should have some sort of an internal effort where we're very proactive about calling companies to find deals. Maybe we should have someone who's also calling potential buyers of our portfolio companies. So actually, my first job there, uh, one of my first jobs there was was picking up the phone and calling the corporate development teams at IBM, Microsoft, uh, SAP, Oracle, and trying to sell our companies. And that was successful. We sold some companies that way. Um, and that was a great start of, uh, it was really sort of a capital markets or internal banker type of job. Uh, and it was really making it up as you go along. I mean, I was sitting in the corner just trying to make myself as useful as possible. Um, I, did a, I did a study on open source software, which I, when they asked me to do it, I'd never heard of what open source software is. Um, and I did a, you know, I had to do sort of a, a two-month study of what would the, be the impact of open source software on their strategy. And, and so, you know, they were, they were, you know, extremely welcoming, very entrepreneurial environment, still is today, but was very much then as well. And, and it was sort of more, give the kid a shot. It was, it was really, it was really, it was really that. And, and, you know, I got to make a presentation back to the entire firm uh, on what I found about 
open source software or did a whole presentation on having spent three months speaking to potential buyers of our portfolio companies, what were they looking for? And, and, and that would help in, inform our investment strategy in terms of if we, if we understood what Microsoft was interested to acquire, maybe that would help us pick interesting companies at our stage that would end up being you know, of interest to Microsoft later, than, later down the road. The road. So that, that's how it started, and, 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 and I, I became a full-time job in September of '03. As, a, as, an, as an associate in the uh, in capital markets. And were you, yeah. did you maintain that kind of role where you were between the, the financial uh, institutions and Insight, yeah? Yeah, and so, so, so yeah, so I ended up sort of building a role where uh, I developed an expertise in helping our companies to go public. So our entrepreneurs and the founders of our businesses would do all the hard work of having a company that can go public, which is really, really hard. It's a very special company. Um, um, so they do all that hard work, but they wouldn't know how to go public. How do you pick the bankers? How do you structure your underwriting agreements? How do you present yourself to the public market investors? How do you tell your story? Um, so I started building an expertise in that. How did that come um, about, that that started to become your area of expertise? We just had companies going public, and, 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 and I had relationships. I had started establishing relationships with the bankers at that point. So the bankers were back in the industry. So I started building relationships with the bankers. Um, not just to help have them sell our companies and help our companies go public, but also to see all their deal flow. So they might have a company that they're selling in the software industry that we'd want to buy. So it was sort of a dual buy side, sell side, where you're managing um, inbound deal flow from the bankers, but also sending some business to them in terms of introducing them to our portfolio companies where they could actually get to work on the IPO or work help sell that company. So it was sort of a, you're sort of sitting in that flow between the firm and the bankers. Um, and then, you know, we, I think, I forget which one, we had some company going public and one of the partners that was on that deal said, would you spend time with that entrepreneur and, and help them get through their IPO process, help them pick their bankers. They don't know any bankers. Um, so it started with that, you know, we've had, I think we've had about 30 IPOs since then. So we, have, we get more than our, we've had 45 in our history, so we get more than our fair share. Um, and so, yeah, so that ended up being something that was really valuable when we'd meet an entrepreneur that might've been skeptical about taking our money um, I might be wheeled in front of that entrepreneur and, and sort of pitch what I do and sort of say, well, if you become part of the Insight family, this is, this is some help that you get that maybe, that maybe will, help, will help you. At what point in, the, in a company's growth do they come to the stage to recognize, well, I'm curious about this, mm-hmm. so I'm going to forgo my assumptions, but yeah. um, do they make a decision at some point in their growth to decide we're building this to cash in, to sell mm-hmm. it off, mm-hmm. or we're building it to go public? It, does that happen at some point where you, and does that change the way that yeah. your company is structured then? Yeah, so so I ended up getting involved in that decision a lot with our companies and I always said it's not a decision. It becomes obvious with the company. Um, and, and it w- w- you know, I'd be asked, you know, by someone on a particular company, do you think this company could go public? Um, and you're looking at the financial profile and you're going at the market size and how much runway does this business have in front of it to warrant going through the hassle and the expense of a public offering and having enough growth in front of it to be able to grow as a public company. So it's very hard to go public today. And the, the bar in terms of the scale that you need to be at, um, or like the scale that you tend to be at today is much higher than people tend to be, tended to be at in the 90s, for example. It's probably three or four times higher today than what it was. Um, and, and at that scale... And is is you, that just because of market demand or is that just... Yeah, the I think the public market investors have, uh, you know, and, and I think this is changing actually, but I think... I think certainly post the technology bubble bursting from the mid 2000s on, the, the the public market investors decided they don't want to see something less than 100 million dollars of revenue, whereas you could be 20 million of revenue in 1995 or 1999 and go public. 
Um, so now that's not a hard and fast rule. There's exceptions to that. Sure. But by and large, I would say um, the, the, the large uh, mutual funds that are the big buyers of in IPOs uh, would rather see something of more scale and at that scale growing very, very quickly. Right. So we invest in companies. I mentioned our, our average company is growing but is 30 to 50 million of revenue at the point where we invest. That average company has somewhere between 60 and 80% revenue growth at that point. So it's already growing very, very quickly. And we'll own it for about five to seven years. Over that five to seven years, most companies, as they get bigger, that growth rate will come down. Law of large numbers just becomes harder and harder to maintain that type of growth rate. You, you might saturate your market. Um, and most of those companies will get very, very cash flow positive. Their growth rate will end up being something less than 20%. You're not going public with that growth rate. Very, very hard. Um, some subset of our companies will maintain that growth rate over our whole period. So we, we, we've had a number of companies go public over the last number of years, and they're the CAGR of their revenue growth rate over um, uh, the six years that we were investors or seven years that we were investors was about 60%. Wow. So they kept on growing at 60%. They ended up being really big companies. You're compounding that growth on top, on top of big numbers already. And so yeah, that's, that's the one that can go public. Do we know at the point where we invest which one, which path these will go? Sometimes we do, but most times we don't. And nor, nor do the entrepreneurs. And it doesn't matter. It's not like, not like you can't have a fantastic liquidity event in other ways, selling to other private equity firms, selling to a strategic. Uh, there's lots of different options for software companies today. Interesting. Yeah. And you get to spend a lot of time then with these founders at that point when they come to that juncture, do you, where you're, you're kind of guiding them along the right path? Yeah, we, we do as a team. Um, so our team has grown out on the capital market side. We, we, our team is, is larger there now. So I actually spend a little bit, I don't spend anywhere near as much time as I used to on, on that. Um, but we do, we're, 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 we're very um, hands-on. We're rolling up our sleeves, helping these companies execute on these, uh, on, on their, if it's an IPO, we're very much helping them. If we think they're going to be sold to a private equity firm, we're doing what we, all, we call our own reverse due diligence, where we'll sort of look at the company fresh. We'll have a, one of our team go in and look at the company fresh, at the numbers and diligence as if we were the buyer. And sort of say, what are the things we'd be focused on? What are the holes that we'd poke in this? And what's the data that we'd want to see to make sure that when that company gets into that process, they have no nasty surprises in terms of their ability to, to execute on transaction. Right. And something I'm just curious on is, is the, the human aspect of that, because we've we've spoken about it very much so up to this point in the structures, but I'm going to uh, siphon it into two different points. When you are investing in these companies, how critical is that the relationship with the founder, because you're looking so much at the growth of the company, you know, you're much more removed uh, from that personal interaction standpoint than a venture capital firm mm-hmm. would be at the very beginning. So is it, does that play a role in the types of investments that you make where you're looking at the, the individuals? It does. Um, it's, 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 you're right. It's not as important as the early stage. You know, in, in seed stage, you're backing a person and sort of saying this person has something interesting that they can do. Um, but we, do, we are assessing the teams that, that we're backing in, a minor, in our minority situations is actually quite important. Um, because if, 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 you know, if that needs to be changed and that that can be, you know, kind of stressful. Um, but, um, I think the most, the most important, it is massive. The relationship is massively important actually in that the most important part of it is we're actually selling ourselves to them. Right. The best companies in our market have a choice of who their private equity partner is. Right. There's, there's, there's lots of capital chasing software deals. There's lots of good companies as well, but there's not enough. And so, um, a good, high-quality, growth-stage software company 
has a choice of who their partner is. We're hardly ever in a position where a good, high-quality company like that is opposite the table from us and begging us to pick them. That never happens. It's the opposite. We're begging them to pick us. Sort of saying, pick us. We're going to be a really good partner. We have all sorts of value-add services that we talk about that are that are really helpful for these companies. Um, we're walking in with showing them the deals that we've done, the situations um, that that we've that we've uh, the types of companies we've done that might be in their space that I think is very relevant for them. But no, it's very much us selling them, um, and that 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 dynamic is is really really important. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it's a complete yeah. it's a complete shift then on the on the early stage investment. Massive. And yeah. with that, are there are there similarities that show up of similar circumstances or traits, I should say, probably within the individual or their execution that have got them to that growth stage point? Because that is obviously that's the cliff edge where so many companies fall off. They don't make it to that point. Is there I, something that you've kind of come to see? I think the harder part is actually after that. So a lot of companies get to the growth stage. So a lot of companies will get to, let's say, $20, $30 million of revenue. Um, I think in any given market, you can get to that size. Um, I always kind of view it as almost like there's an invisible barrier at at that level where you can get to that level uh, with good execution. But beyond that, you need a really good execution and probably a very good product market fit. Um, And the product market fit is the hardest part for us to figure out. And it's also a very hard part for for a founder, an entrepreneur to figure out. It's really been about a, a real strong focus on, on product. Um, of course, sales and marketing execution is massively important too. Um, there's probably not as much X factor in that as there is in understanding your product market fit and where your, pro- where your market is going and what you should be doing with your product to make sure that it maintains leadership within whatever market you're focused on. And you've got you've got some amazing companies in that. Like I, I had a chance to look at your portfolio before we got to sit down today, and some of them are very clear and obvious to me because I see their I see their online advertising all the time, like Wix, sure, or Mondays uh, Mondays dot com. Yep. Yep. Those were two clear ones that stood yep. out to me. But there was there was a lot of other familiar uh, companies that were in there as well. How many how many investments are you guys taking on a year? Probably anywhere from thirty five to forty companies a year. Wow. Yeah. And your role then in the capital markets, could you just explain that to me in, in greater detail? Because it's, it's evolved from obviously where, where it began in, in 03. Yeah. What, yeah. Are, what, are, what are you doing day to day? So, and I'll be honest, day to day, I don't do a lot of it. There's a team that, that works for me that, that, that does a lot of it. And, and they are so good. They're, almost, they're, they're very self-sufficient uh, and, and independent of me and do a fantastic job, a better job than I ever did on it. But I spend most of my time actually on capital formation today, which is different side of the business, which is actually being in front of the clients. Um, there's a lot of synergies between the capital markets and capital formation, but it, it is fundamentally a different different activity. And actually, I'd say probably 85, 90% of my time today is, is on that as opposed which to the capital markets. Which adding, is adding investors to your fund. It's in front of our clients. So the, the sovereign funds and the, and the pension funds, all the institutional investors that want exposure to what we do. Uh, it's it's telling our story to them and encourage them to invest in our funds and managing our relationships sales. with them. Back in sales, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you enjoy yeah. that work of going out, that pitching? Love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. What is yeah. it that feeds you about that type of work? You know, look, we have we ourselves, as an insight, what we have to offer is a fantastic product. Um, you know, what we do um, it, it, it is very unique. Um, we do it very uniquely. We've got great returns. Um, I think any large institutional investor should have ex- exposure to what we do in the context of a broader portfolio. Should they put all their money into something like us? No, but within a range of a broader portfolio, everyone should have exposure to, it's really the, the growth stage of the software industry. Um, and venture capital is very hard for these 
investors to get access to. The venture capital firms' funds are really, really small. And it's very hard to even get any meaningful exposure to that in terms of dollar amount. These, these sovereign funds and, and pension funds are, are huge. Um, so I'm spending time with anywhere from, you know, teachers union, you know, CalPERS and, and, and lots of, you know, public pension plans here in the United States, sovereign wealth funds in, in Asia, the Middle East, and in Europe, um, endowments and foundations that have money, large amounts of money to invest and really helping them get into, get into our funds. You know, really trying to understand people's priorities. What are they focused on? What, what, are, what are their sensitivities? Um, these are people who are responsible for people's retirements. They have obligations. They have, uh, like every year, they have to be able to deliver certain returns. They have to maintain liquidity within their within their pension funds uh, to save. You know, the, like what's happened in the last week, where stock markets go down and all the public, all their public valuations, their public stock goes down. So, so they, these people have a lot of obligations, and you have to really understand what their constraints are, what their appetite for risk reward might be, and then help them understand where we might fit in that. And sometimes we won't, and that's right. fine. But we're in this business for a long time. These are these are major decisions. Um, you know, we, you know, we've 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 had investors that you know we spent ten years with, more, and 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 we built great relationships with them, but they never invested in our funds until just recently, and that's that's not unusual in this business. And on the cultural aspect of it, I saw that you opened up an office inside. Opened up an office. Was it in twenty nineteen in Tel yep. Aviv? Yep. So yep. that's obviously a, a great point of focus, and for the market that you focus on which is growth stage, primarily SaaS companies. <laughs> There's tons of that in Tel Aviv. There is, there is. It, 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 over the last, you know, five, seven years, it's been amazing. Um, you know, so we, we've been active there since the early, since the late 90s. We did our first deals. Um, so was that, is that companies. The, always been a present factor there? It was much less so then. Um, it historically has been a very hardware-orientated technology community. Um, it all starts with the military. Um, and it's been a very sort of cybersecurity and sort of deep tech, very hardware orientated um, within the military. And, and, and if you look at sort of the big sort of the big wins that came out of that, uh, you know, whether it's in networking equipment or semiconductors and things like that out of Israel. Um, um, so, so we did some Israeli deals in the late 90s, early 2000s, but it was a trickle. It was not a lot. It was a very small portion of our portfolio completely different today. So it's, it's, it's shifted from a hardware-orientated innovation effort to a software-orientated innovation effort. And that's been, um, that's been amazing. Um, so yeah, we have, I think we probably have about 15 companies there now. Some of our biggest, most exciting stories are coming out of, coming out of, out of Israel. So yeah, we're, we're spending a lot of time there. We did put one person there to help manage our relationships. It's a very active venture capital community. So we like to manage the relationships with the venture capital firms there. Uh, having someone on the ground helps us when we find a comp- when we ha- have a, a sense of a company that that we're interested in. Um, you know, I did mention earlier, but most of our deals that we do are companies that we actually cold call. So we have we have forty people that are picking up the phone, calling every private software company in the world, and we don't necessarily have to have a physical presence in all these countries to do deals in those countries. But we figured for Tel Aviv, it actually made a lot of sense to have one person there, given the amount of activity. So if we're on the phone with this is a really interesting company. Daniel, who's our partners person in Tel Aviv, can go and visit that person the next day. Uh, what are your uh, What are your people doing when they pick up the phone in those circumstances? Are they who are they looking for, and what are they asking the people? So, so really, so that whole sourcing effort really addresses you know the critical challenge of growth equity investing, and in that most growth equity companies are not looking for capital. Uh, a lot of them are not. Um, they may not have bankers. 
Um, many of them do not. Um, they may not have or established institutional investors already in their company. So it's very hard to rely on the traditional networks that private equity has used to find deals, which was bankers and early stage investors. And so um, at the outside of the business, we decided to address that by, by not sitting in our office waiting for deals to come to us, because that would be a pretty quiet day, twiddling your thumb. And we decided we would be very proactive. And so we literally started creating a proprietary database with, loaded up with every private software company that we could find pick up the phone and call the company. Uh, and it's a very proactive effort. Um, um, the average, t and, and it's, it's systematic. We're calling these companies every three to six months. Today, there's about 120,000 companies in the database. Um, the vast majority of those companies are not a fit for our strategy. They're either too small and have never gotten to the growth stage. Um, and, and, and that hopefully that growth stage is some point in front of them. Or they're too big and they're not growing fast enough. Um, so we're trying to find those companies in that sweet spot of growth. Um, and um, we, we just have a very systematic way of calling every single one of them. Um, so the average time from when we actually first speak to a company, when we call it, to when we actually end up investing in a company is about three and a half years. So we're getting a lot of information on these companies over time, building relationships, which is the most important thing. So the first time we call it, they may not need capital. They might be too early stage for us. We build relationships over time. So hopefully when they do want to raise capital, we, we'll get a call. And um, yeah, th so that drives anywhere from 50 to 70% of the deals that we do are sourced through that effort. And it's, it's easily our most important competitive advantage. It's the biggest asset that we has a, have as a firm. Yeah, it's amazing because that, that goes back to the kind of the, the core, one of the core tenets of sales, you know, yeah. is going out and For doing sure. that, that outreach. But yeah. interestingly enough, through software, a lot of people will try and bypass that and they'll think, oh, well, maybe there's something that we can automate or rely yeah, on Yeah, look, there's a, there's a lot of noise around that at the moment. We, yeah. we, we've made our own investments. We've invested, actually invested about $3 million in our own technology, artificial intelligence technology, to help us identify what might be the most interesting companies in our database. But there's no silver bullet. It's, it's, not, pick, it's not spitting out the perfect company. I don't think it ever gets to that. Yeah. This is a relationship business at the end of the day. So, yeah, like so, so many are. So, so even if it did spit out the name of the perfect company, that doesn't mean you get to invest in it. Um, you still have to be chosen by that entrepreneur. The entrepreneurs done all that hard work of building this fantastic opportunity. They're not just going to give it to you because a piece of AI engine, AI software tells you it's the right opportunity. It's heartening, I'm sure, for people to hear that that's, that's how it's still being done because yes. there is a lot of noise, as you said, around, around all the other avenues and yep. opportunities. Yep. But still, bringing in sales and business requires that grunt work. But something that I'm just curious on that I'd like to go back to is a lot of the conversations that we have in this setting at some point lead to Irish entrepreneurs and Irish startups growing. And sometimes people will lend in to talk about the the fact that the small island uh, limits the, the the mindset of the entrepreneurs of mm -hmm. what they're capable of achieving, sometimes feeling like they could sell out for 3 million when they could get 300 million. There's many different conversations that come out of that. But you an insight that you have, which I find quite interesting, is, is a country like Israel, where they are a very small nation, but they have built a very, very, very strong and progressive ecosystem around mm -hmm. developing software companies. Have you seen what it, obviously they, you mentioned that the seeds of that are in the military and mm -hmm. how you're, there's kind of a culture to move into that work from there because you've been exposed to it. But are there things that you see that people do there or a type of culture and system that's there that could be adopted in Ireland to try and encourage businesses and software companies to develop and flourish within the Irish 
Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I've been, I've been thinking about it a lot. I, I wouldn't say I have perfect answers on this by any means, but um, look, I say there's a, there is a lot of similarities. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Tel Aviv. Obviously, I spend a lot of time in Ireland. I think the beauty of both is that they are small countries. You have to be very export-orientated right from the start. Ireland is a, clearly an exporting country. So is Israel. Uh, and so there's no way you're building a software company in Ireland thinking that it's going to be a really big business by having any non-U.S., by just having Irish customers. You can probably do some, but but by and large, you're probably not concluding that. You've already got and your so you have to. You're immediately. You can imagine a company in the U.S. is the last thing they're ever thinking about is leaving the U.S. Right? Yeah. They just target the U.S. market. Whereas, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think it, you know that sort of outwardly, that sort of outward perspective um, leads to a lot of really good energy around these businesses. And 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 um, I don't think it's a challenge. I think it, I think actually it makes life easier. Uh, the fact that you have to. You know, if you're a, an Irish company and you have to go and establish your sales and marketing operation in New York or Boston or San Francisco or wherever, I think that's a net positive, and that's what these companies in Israel are doing. I think, look, there's there's definitely some sort of path where people who are in the so you know, uh, Israel has this 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 conscript you know conscription where you have to have to go into the into the military. There is for one reason or another, I don't know where it comes from, but there's a path where. Once you finish your military service, you start a company. That's what people do. They code at the at the military. So there's a lot of you can imagine a lot of deep cybersecurity coding going on within the Israeli military. So you'll not be surprised to see a strong bias towards security software in the Israeli software ecosystem, and we have that in our portfolio too. So there's a lot of natural. There's some natural advantages there that I think we don't have in Ireland. Um, Look, I, I think you know. You mentioned you mentioned you know entrepreneurs you know potentially selling their businesses a bit earlier, um, you know in Ireland and, and and you know clearly that it happened and and it's you know I, I think it's always hard for us to, to judge that uh, you know I think you know if someone has built a lot of value, who are any of us to say that you shouldn't you shouldn't cash in on that value given if you think of the risk that these entrepreneurs take I mean it's just amazing I, I couldn't do it I mean what they do to to build their businesses and and I don't know you know put 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 their monthly expenses on a credit card or remortgage their home or all the you know the, the the things that you have to do to start a business, I think it, you know it, it's just unbelievable. So, whether they sell for five million or hundred million or three hundred or a billion, I mean it's all it's all positive. But we had the same issue in Israel. I would say our issue with Israel in the early two thousands was that they would sell very early, um, and 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 I think there be, there became a realization in, in Israel where people said, "Well, we're selling these businesses early," and then that business that I sold to IBM ended up being ten times bigger. And 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 gee, I could have just I could have just kept it myself, or I kept to run it for longer and made I had a much bigger exit, or maybe I would have gone public and would have had an independent independent business. And you know, for the local economy, of course, maybe they would have employed more people in the local economy, and that obviously has a has a has a big benefit. Um, so we did see that in Israel, and that was probably one of our pre o five, or maybe pre o seven, pre the recession. That was sort of our observation, um, and that seems to have changed. Um, you know, maybe we've been a bit of part of helping change that because we can come in now and say, well, you know, yes, your venture capital partners are in this for five to seven years and you've got potential of a good exit in front of you. But instead of selling to that strategic, maybe sell to us. We can we can be the buyer. And you, the entrepreneur, you can sell a bit or you can sell all. But what you don't sell, you'll be alongside us and hopefully make a lot more money in the long term. Uh, and that's our value proposition. But look, I, I think, you know, in terms of the differences, in terms of, you know, what are the underlying uh, triggers that, that that could help. Um, I, I would say there's a very 
today there's a very healthy seed stage and early stage investment community in Israel who have done well. And because they've done well, they don't, they're, they're not afraid of making more bets, put yeah. it that way. Yeah. I imagine it's easier to raise seed stage in Israel today than it is in Ireland today. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of this is just, you know, and, and, and I, I think it was probably very hard in Israel 15 years ago, but now they've had this success. They've had these VCs that have done very well and these seed, seed stage investors that have done very well. Um, it's coming back they can around. take another, they can take another risk. You know, if you've, if you've done really, really well, um, why not do a whole new range of, of seed, of seed investments? So, so I think that that's a big part of it. But look, we're, we're tracking the Irish market. We, I've, I've been tracking, it's been my mission to do as many soft Irish deals as, as we can, uh, for all my time in Ireland, it was like waiting for a bus. <laughs> three, three of them came along in one year. So, so, um, I was fortunate uh, to, to kind of help out in some of those, and um, and it's been great. And we're, we're continuing to track the market very aggressively. We, you know, I actually personally track, you know, how many companies we're tracking there, and and how many companies we're calling, and and I'll get pulled in to help on any, because uh, I, you know, passionate obviously about making as as much, having as many Irish companies in our portfolio as possible. It helps me get back to Ireland a bit more often. Yeah. So, yeah. Something I'm just quite curious about that I'm mm. thinking of as we as I listen to your story and this conversation is that. It's almost like a series of chapters. Have, have you ever thought about that looking back in your story or your, your career trajectory, that kind of first bookend being in, in the, the marketing sphere, looking at like business in terms of marketing and sales to your evolution kind of then in towards your first stage at Insight Partners mm -hmm. and then this, this most recent part in what you're doing now. It seemed that, that they're distinct within themselves, but they all feed into each other. Yeah, I mean, definitely going and doing my MBA was a, was a watershed for sure. That feels like a, there was a, I always feel like a, a before and an after. It feels like there was a very clear. Was there a change in your mindset then. after doing it? No, I wouldn't say so, but, 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 uh, but I did recognize that the path I was on pre MBA was not a path that I was, was going to keep me happy. Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely didn't feel like I, I, I wasn't, I couldn't see what I was going to be doing in 10 years' time for sure. Um, and so, and so as much as it felt like a bit of a risk jumping out and giving up my job and, and going back to school, it, it really didn't feel like that. It felt like this is something I had to do. Um, um, you know, I, I, guess I haven't seen it like chapters cause it's just been going nonstop. It's sort of, you know, 90 miles an hour for, for, for how long it's been, but it, I do laugh, uh, to think that I'm still involved in technology right from my first co-op at UL, you know, and the fact that I did my thesis on the Newton message pad and, and, and now virtually every software company that we invest in has a whole mobile strategy to it. And that's a, a big part of the catalyst for the markets that we're investing into is mobile. So it's, it's interesting that that has all come full circle and that I sort of found a place where um, my sales skills are really important. My marketing skills are really important. Uh, my passion for technology is very much accommodated by what we do. Um, and there's a huge financial component in terms of helping these, these clients and partners of ours you know, figure out, you know, whether they should be part of our funds. Um, so it's, it's a really nice combination of all the things that I've been passionate about. I want to say a huge thank you to Kian for joining me on the show today. And thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have any suggestions, please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com and let us know. If you want to learn more about the Digital Irish, you can visit digitalirish.com or message us on social with hashtag digitalirish. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show. It helps us so much. You can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts and all other major podcasting platforms. 
I'd like to thank Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.